0: Rush Holds Radio, with your host, John Stevenson. This
1: is the
0: UFO activity.
1: And there I in the darkness, on the ground, ghosts. knocking on the walls,
0: something crawling obviously she yeah.
1: Why?
2: Why? Oh my God, there you is seen a this? What the
0: evidence to
1: a formation forming. She... ghosts?
2: You're listening to Thresholds Radio with John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Scotty Roberts, the publisher of Intrepid Magazine and author of The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. More on that after this quick commercial break. Stay plugged.
3: EdgeonAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on the TheEdgeOnAir.com.
0: Alright, you're listening to
2: Thresholds Radio. Right now we have Scotty Roberts on the line.
0: Welcome to the show, Scotty. How are you doing today?
2: Hey, I'm doing just great today, I, I think. You know, I I, I always say I, I don't speak English before coffee, and uh, so I have now had uh, two cups of coffee, and I think I'm getting it. Yeah, so
0: do I. Do you want to tell everybody about yourself who you know people might not know who you are i know that's terrible to say that but i mean i know you have magazine books you got an amazing event coming up in october do you want to tell people about yourself
2: sure sure uh well let's see um i uh um <laughs> there there's there's the first big um pause see,
0: see i caught you off guard you're like whoa you caught me off you're guard. like oh my god i'm boring what am i gonna say <laughs>
2: you know that was like the first time i ever went into a job for an interview and they say, so uh tell us why we should hire you and tell us the, the 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 good features about yourself and i go uh uh well i you know and so that's where and, he then it. you're
0: honest like i want to eat
2: <laughs> right right I, I just need the money really and uh, uh so uh, uh anyway uh, i have uh, uh i started out in ministry and i was in seminary back in the early 80s and and uh I went from there right into advertising, so uh, uh, and then spent the next thirty years in advertising. So that gives you that's a transition, my gosh! (laughs) What a segue there. And uh, uh, so, in advertising, uh, I've done many things. I've done uh, uh, comic book publishing. I've done uh, publishing of other sorts. Uh, I have uh, been involved in some television and radio stuff and behind the scenes things. And uh, mostly a designer and an illustrator along the way, and a writer. And uh, um, so I've I've got a new book out, which is what we're going to be talking about today through New Page Books. And it is uh, entitled "The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim," and this is a topic that I had been thinking about for a long time, and contemplating, and studying, and researching. And it's out of the Book of Genesis, and this is why. Uh, um, I actually spend most of the book within the biblical context at first, uh, and then expand beyond that. And uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way, I don't spend most of the book there. I, I start very heavily in it, and I come back to it from time to time. But that's because that's where the source of the word Nephilim is. It's found in the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, uh, I, I've done that as well. And uh, that book is, uh, has been out now since February of this year. I'm already working uh, for New Page Books on the follow-up book to the Nephilim, entitled uh, The Secret History of the Reptilians, and it's subtitled The Pervasive Presence of the Serpent Throughout Human History, Religion, and Alien Mythos. And uh, it's exploring the bloodlines of the Nephilim, which you may not know anything about because we haven't even talked about it yet on this program. Uh, But we'll get into that, and we'll... Uh, explain some of that and where that's going I also publish a magazine intrepid magazine and I like to say we have an eclectic focus because we we don't just focus on one topic unless you put us on the uh, under the umbrella of the unexplained and how things fit in but then we also talk about politics and science sometimes medicine Uh, but then we also hit all the fringe elements of those and we speak about ancient aliens and ufology and archaeology and uh, cosmology and all the other ologies in between. We speak about uh, conspiracy theories. You're basically
0: and, a magazine edition of this show.
2: Uh, d- there you go. I, I like to say it's a magazine about all the stuff I like. And, uh, and that's what I'm doing with it. And that really launched. Uh, it's not because I ever went out there and thought I should be a magazine publisher, you know, and that's what I was pursuing in life. But I I had worked for the the, the ghost hunters from a Sci-Fi Network uh, for about a year and a half as the editor in chief of their official magazine Taps ParaMag, and uh, when I was brought on board there, I was asked what my vision for their magazine was, and and I said it should encompass more than just ghost hunting because there's a lot of people out there exactly, Eric, it's and, boring as uh, heck, right? And uh, so they they loved it, but we never were allowed to implement that. It just never went any further. And so after about a year and a half, I left that outfit, and I launched Intrepid Magazine the very next day. And uh, so we've been out for – our first issue came out as a preview issue in February of 2011. And then our issue number one, the inaugural issue, came out in April of 2011. And we've been publishing almost every month since then. So we've got a bit of a catch as catch can uh, schedule sometimes, but we try to stay as close to the months as possible.
0: You know why you're on that subject right now, so we don't just run over it. Uh, what's the website, or you know, for people that want to see your
2: magazine? Sure, you can go to intrepidmag.com, and it's just the word intrepid, i n t r e p i d mag m a g dot com, and uh, um, you can download a free sample of uh, the magazine. It's a little magazine over on the right side. You'll see uh the front cover with Chip Coffee, Psychic Chip Coffee's face on the front cover. And he was gracious enough to give us uh, uh an interview on uh in our first uh, uh free issue we call it. And uh, so just click on that and you can download that as a PDF. Now the magazine is not in print. But It is not, and no offense to my my good publishing buddies out there, uh, it is not a cheap uh, internet text-only, a few 72 DPI photos to go along with your articles type of online magazine. That is not what we do. Uh, I create the magazine as if we were going to press, uh, to print it on on paper with ink. Uh, But since we do not go to press yet, we just burn that, issue then as a PDF version, and we put it out uh, via email to all of our subscribers. So that's very high quality, then. and those PDF magazines are really nice. It's it, As a matter of fact, you know, I've got a Kindle, and I subscribe to National Geographic uh, to see how their magazine looks on a on a, uh, a device like that, and uh, I was started to laugh where I said, this is done exactly how I do Intrepid, because they they put out their for Kindle or for Android version of uh, their magazine is simply a PDF uh, shots of their magazine, and that's exactly what we do. So uh, I said, "Hey, we're right up there with uh, National Geographic. It's all positioning, baby." But uh, um, and I don't use the word baby like we well, did uh, now, and it's recorded, so it's going to live. Go. I usually point my finger and I. Gotcha, babe. Hey, let's do lunch. That just doesn't
0: work well for radio, though.
2: <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, you can't see that. that yeah. That's well, if you are truly,
0: a truly a good writer, you could say it so clearly that the audience would visualize it.
2: Oh yeah. He pointed his finger into the blackness, and said, "Click." Yeah, yeah whatever. You know, it's a dark and stormy night. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, so that's that's what I do with Intrepid Magazine, and uh, we've got. Uh, what I believe are some of the most phenomenal contributors and uh, people that appear in this magazine. And when I say it's it's eclectic, we we, we kind of at first likened ourselves to the 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 uh, the, the long gone uh, Omni magazine, where we cover a lot of different topics. Um, and uh, here's a for instance in our magazine, you could be reading an article where I I interviewed Barry Schwartz, the photo imaging specialist from the Shroud of Turin, mm-hmm. uh, for 35 years and uh, so you get this in-depth article on on the technological side of the photo imaging uh, uh, examination of the shrouded tour and then you flip the page and you can read an article by former governor of Minnesota Arnie Carlson who I interviewed on current politics of the day um then you could uh, flip over and you'll find an article by Philip Coppins who uh, is one of the uh, the prominent talking heads on the show Ancient Aliens on History Channel's H2 and uh, uh, he wrote about uh, uh, the sacred sites of uh, Great Britain and focusing on the Hill of Avalon or the, the Glastonbury Tour, And uh, uh, then you might find something on ghosts. You'll find something on aliens. Uh, Anthony F. Sanchez writing on the DNA connection between uh, ancient aliens and humans. Uh, um, and uh, uh, all sorts of articles like that. So it'll jump all over the place and give... The idea is to give the reader... A lot of cool stuff to look at, and we have at the core of it all this. I, I really bristle a bit at the at the the paranormal label, but in essence, we are talking about things that are uh, external to the normal, so the paranormal, uh, but we don't bill ourselves as a paranormal magazine. It's more as a, a magazine that explores the unexplained, right. and uh, uh, so uh, if you are into that stuff, you'll enjoy it. And also, if I can, uh, we talked about this, uh, John, if I can uh, give a little plug for Paradigm Symposium. Oh,
0: definitely. That, that sounds absolutely amazing. I uh, want you to talk about
2: that. If you're into this stuff, and the stuff we're going to be talking about about my book today, um, we are putting on through Intrepid Magazine the Paradigm Symposium. It's in Minneapolis, Minnesota, October 18th through the 21st. And and by the way, I have people say, oh, man, if it wasn't in Minnesota, why are you doing it in Minnesota? Well, <laughs> did you know that Minnesota, Minneapolis is the northern end of the cultural corridor. Uh, Minneapolis is the second largest city for advertising agencies and the eclectic cutting edge of uh, of advertising. Uh, it's, a, it's quite a, a culturally based city, and it is not the frozen tundra that people think it is. We, uh, while we might have a week or two. In January, that is sub zero and very Arctic, we also have in the summer the flip flop. We've got subtropical where we're 105 degrees in high humidities, and you'd think alligators are going to crawl out <laughs> of the streams. Oh, it sounds um, like a wonderful place. But, but a wonderful place. But spring and fall are the most are, are the wonderful transitional seasons. And the third weekend of October is the prime fall color uh, tree uh, leaf turning season. And so uh, uh, last year, the third week of October, we were still in the the lower 80s up here. So it's a nice weekend up here. And it's not as far as people like to say it is. We're not like in Canada, uh, (laughs) although we border Canada a six-hour drive north of here. uh, But uh, we are in that uh, that whole uh, uh, five-state area here. And so uh, all that to say Minnesota ain't that far away. And uh, um, I've flown to Pennsylvania uh, and New York in in less than two hours from Minnesota. So, anyway, uh, the Paradigm Symposium, Minneapolis, October 18th through the 21st. If you're into all of this type of talk about ancient aliens and as it pertains to ancient archaeology, cosmology, anthropology, um, this is what we are focusing on at this event. And the speakers we have are phenomenal. We've got Eric Von Daniken. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good original... one right there, definitely. He's amazing. This is going to be his first American appearance in almost ten years, and uh, he wrote the original *Chariots of the Gods* back in in uh, 1968, and has written about thirty books since then. Matter of fact, my book, uh, um, *The The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim*, is published by the same publisher, New Page Books, as uh, Eric Von Daniken's new books. Uh we have also George Nori from Coast to Coast Radio coming to speak. We have uh from the History Channel's uh, H2 Network, uh The Ancient Aliens show. We have Bill Burns, Philip Coppins, and Giorgio Sukalis coming up.
0: Oh, you got Giorgio, huh? We got Giorgio. Did you get his hair? <laughs> We've got his hair. We have to pay for a second. <laughs> that, a sec- that's second second I was gonna say that's second billing too,
2: right? <laughs> <laughs> And I say that all in, in good natured jest.
0: Oh yeah, def- well he does too. If you ever see his Facebook thing, actually somebody yeah. made a Facebook uh, page
2: just for his hair. Nice. Well, my my two and a half year old son did that one day, uh, not knowing who Giorgio is, but he uh, we were doing family photos at the house, and he took his hands and he and he and he made his hair all stand on end. <laughs> And we posted, and I posted to Giorgio's page, and I said, this is my son Flynn doing uh, his impression of you. And uh, so, uh, anyway, and we've got ten other authors uh, within this field. Uh, that are, we've got uh, John Ventry from MUFON. Uh, we've got uh, Laird Scranton. Uh, we've got uh, uh, Dr. John Ward, a good friend of mine from Luxor, Egypt, uh, who is coming. He and his, uh, uh, his partner, uh, uh, Dr. Maria Nilson, our archaeologist-anthropologist for the last 10 years in uh, Luxor, Egypt. And uh, uh, so he's flying in to speak on uh, symbology in ancient Egyptian uh, uh, language as it relates to uh, Herefordshire, where he's from in Great Britain, uh, and uh, the Cathars and the Templars and all of that. Wow. And uh, uh, so we've got, uh, you can go look at the site, just simply go to ParadigmSymposium.com. And the easiest way to get there, if you don't know how to spell paradigm or symposium, uh, just go to intrepidmag.com and click on the Paradigm Symposium link at the top of the page. What them if they can't spell intrepid? <laughs> uh-oh. Uh, that, one, that one you'll have to look up. <laughs> Intrepid's real easy. I-N-T-R-E-P-I-D. Just trying to cover all the bases for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. Paradigm, you know, it's one of those weird English words. We think uh, because we grew up speaking English, English is just a wonderful language. And why can't anybody get it? Why can't I talk to a foreigner and just say, can you understand me? Why can't they just pick that up? Because English is so, uh, is so, is so uh, logical. Until you get outside of English and you look back in and you see all the stupid rules of language we have. And uh, I before E except after C or H or when we want to do it the other way around. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, 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 paradigm is spelt uh the brits would probably pronounce it paradigm. yeah it's it's spelt a lot different than how it sounds <laughs> That's p-a-r-a-d-i-g-m and symposium s-y-m-p-o-s-i-u-m dot com well, the, the
0: thing sounds actually amazing i mean the, the guests the calibers the subject uh, it sounds like it's going to be the the go-to event for this season actually
2: it's, it's going to be. We've, we've had, uh, actually had people within uh, uh, the field uh, that are, you know, as people you would say in the know, have said this is an event of a lifetime, this mix of people. And uh, we would like to say we agree with that. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, it's something where if you are interested in this kind of thing, uh, I'd go check it out now. Tickets are on sale now. They have been on sale. And they're selling uh, I would uh, if you were interested, go take a look at the tickets and go take a look at the hotel and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as of yesterday, we have to uh, bump up the uh, block of hotel rooms available because they are all sold out as of yesterday of the special price for the hotel rooms. Oh that's cool. Yeah. but we'll just have that bumped up uh, in the next day or so they'll just add another block of rooms. so we'll do not- is
0: we'll put a link on
2: uh, on the website too for this so people can click right on that fantastic. <laughs> So there it is. That's, that's what I do. Uh, those are the things I'm working on. And, uh, um, I'm a, I'm a designer. I'm an illustrator. I'm a photographer. I publish a magazine and I write books and, uh, we're putting on this big symposium. That's, that's all about me. And as we talk about, as we get into the book, it's really the stuff I learned theologically when I was in seminary that drove me to write this book after years of thinking about it. And, uh, um, I, I had a, a lot of problems with things that were taught me that I had questions about but was not getting satisfactory answers on. And so I started doing my, my my own research, and that's really where I ended up with this.
0: So you are questioning authority there. You're not supposed to do that. Don't they teach you not oh, to man. do that?
2: <laughs> As a matter of fact, they do. I, I was at a very conservative, fundamentalist, Baptist setting uh, where I got my theological training. And the, I, no offense to my friends who are still in it or anybody that's in evangelical Christianity. I do not want to dissuade anybody from believing what they believe or try to convince you that it's false or anything like that. I have my issues with it. I have my naysaying moments for evangelical Christianity. Even though, as I'm very fond of saying, I have not thrown out the baby with the bathwater, um, I still believe the basic tenets of that faith. I just have huge questions and uh questions that don't seem to get answered very easily and some questions that make faith look like I'm believing in something that does not make any sense and it's not just that paradox of belief uh saying uh, um, you know this power of paradox that goes behind believing that uh, uh a, a carpenter could be the savior of mankind not that kind of paradox it's the idea of saying the things that i've researched and su- studied seems to indicate that the things i believe are based in older religions or copycatted from older religions and we'll talk about that a bit today and where i find that all these religions when it comes to the story of the nephilim all have their versions there's o- there are over 600 different ancient st- a- ancient tribal sources ancient religions and cultures that tell the same stories uh, and use different gods, different casts of characters, but tell the same stories. And some of those stories are three thousand years older than the writing of the Old Testament, the earliest books of the Old Testament. And you start to ask the question and say, "What came first, the chicken or the egg?" And is there a faith that is a real faith? Um, I can put my faith in something that doesn't necessarily mean that that something is true. And uh, to quote. Uh, the the late Richard Feynman, he was a, a contemporary of Einstein and Oppenheimer, and a, a, a nuclear physicist, a quantum physicist, and he made the statement. He said, "There's a, there are a lot of things that I know something about. He says, then again, there's a lot of things I know very little about, and there's a whole host of things I know absolutely nothing about." And he said. I I would rather die not knowing than live my life believing something that I later find out to be false. Hmm. And uh um, and he ties that all into this this idea of uh when I when I have doubts about things I ask questions. And the more I ask and doubt and ask again and doubt again Uh, and seek answers, the more I find it harder to believe with anything I I shovel up as I'm doing my research. Uh, He says, so I'm satisfied feeling a bit lost in the cosmos. And that's that's really where I am with some things. My religion, if you will, my personal religion, my faith has taken a huge paradigm shift in the last couple of years, especially, and since I've uh, I've been researching these things, because I say, if God exists at all he doesn't exist in the form I always thought he was and uh, so that's my personal stuff so when you hear me throughout either this interview or you read the book you'll find where I take religion to task I take some of these things to task I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater but I do have big questions Mm-hmm. that are I'm trying to find answers for.
0: Exactly. I think we all do. Most of the people in this type of field, you know you that's why we're here. We have questions. We just don't fit in the normal categories. We're thinking outside the
2: box. Exactly. And that's what I encourage people to do in this book, is without throwing out any faith, you can step outside the box for a moment and look back in and say, okay, I need to see this from an objective standpoint, rather from within a dogmatic, systematic theological standpoint I need to step away for a minute and see what it's all really saying so uh, from the outside and how does that look from the outside when I go into in this book examining ancient language and ancient texts um, I say that that the etymology and the evolution of language uh, especially in the the ancient Hebrew uh, when you're dealing with a biblical or a, what's considered to be a scriptural, spiritual topic, there's something you have to do, and this is, this is across the board. If you're examining any ancient language or any ancient text, even if it's not a religious text, you have to look at things and say, ask yourself a few question, questions. Number one, what language is it written in, and what does that language, the, the logic of how that language is constructed, how does that affect what's being written about Number two, who was the audience to whom the piece was being written, and if you have an audience that understands that language in ancient times, would the context of when they lived and where they lived and what was being written in the language being said affect what the meaning of uh, of of their understanding of what was being written be different than ours in in modern times, and then you also have to look at at uh, the the context historically. And so you start looking at all these things, and you might get a very different twist on an ancient passage than we interpret it in modern language. And so I, I go into, and not to glaze anybody's eyes over, but I go into uh, the etymology of some ancient languages in this book just to understand certain words. And the book isn't about etymology of language. I incorporate some of that, in. and I'm no linguist, uh, but I, I hail to the, the research of those who are and uh... Um, what i've really tried to do in this book is is find the areas that even if it's supposed to glaze your eyes over because it sounds boring i've tried to make it exciting and passionate and something uh... that that's going to to, to pique your interest uh... if you uh... Um, if you look at these things as things that shed light on, on huge topics that's where it becomes exciting to find out what the stuff really means It sounds fascinating so it, and it is fascinating. It's it's crazy fascinating. So um uh let, let's just uh, let's let's start talking about the Nephilim. Uh the title of the book is The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. And uh, some people may not even know what the Nephilim are, but it is a word that has become pop culturally even uh, referenced to ancient alien studies. And You've seen movies even done about the Nephilim. There was some movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. where they're at some. Isn't it always a remote ice station in the Arctic where these <laughs> things happen? It's and
0: it's always been like that. I remember movies when I was a kid too.
2: Yeah, and so uh, the, from the the original thing, you know, was uh, I think that was one of the, where it all started. The the remote Arctic ice station, you know, research station. That was a classic but, movie too, by the way. <laughs> Oh yeah, which has been remade two or three times. But he, uh, uh, the Nephilim in this movie with Kubrick Gooding Jr. was some big thing frozen in the ice, and they discover it's a Nephilim. You know, it's an ancient alien. Ooh, and so uh, it's it's even gone up into comic books, movies, and things like that. But the source of the word Nephilim is the Hebrew Bible, the Book of Genesis. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Book of Genesis. Uh, the Book of Beginnings is what that means. And uh, the Nephilim are mentioned in just a few verses in chapter 6. And it goes like this, it says, and in those days, the sons of God descended to the earth and intermingled with human women and had children by them. And these children were known as the Nephilim, the heroes of old and the men of renown. And it says, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of god came to the daughters of men and had children by them then it goes into a couple of verses that speak about about uh, the, the the mortality of man the age of man being 120 years then it goes right into uh the story of Noah and the ark which many of us are familiar with and uh, we could all recite the story of Noah and ark in about 8 seconds God was pissed off at the wickedness of man, so he is going to destroy the earth by a flood and everything in it, except for the one righteous man in his family, who He told to build a big boat, big barge, to house all these animals that God would bring to him to save everything, and it was this big thing. We all know the story from there. What's interesting is that the story of the Nephilim, the sons of God intermingling with the daughters of men, is actually the prelude to the Noah and the Ark story it's the preamble but they're rarely ever taught together i i don't remember being in sunday school when i was a kid in 3rd grade and seeing the little felt storyboards cutouts you know of the white bearded noah and his family and all the animals 2 by 2 and and uh uh, then the teacher saying, and, and then there were these beings who descended from the heavens and had sex with human women. Yeah, I and missed that part. Yeah, I missed that part too. <laughs> but it's right there. Read Genesis chapter 6 and you will see it. Now, the interesting thing about this too is that the story is very neutral. It doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't say anything about these sons of God or the impregnating with human women, this hybrid race. It, there's no judgment cast on it. It's not good or bad. It's just a neutral story. Um, and nephilim, by the way, is in the Hebrew a word that means this. It comes from the word, root word nephal, which means to fall, to come down, to descend, for one to leave one's estate and go to another. And then there are broader applications of that. The Him on the end, the im, is a Hebrew suffix. This is where etymology of language gets exciting. Um, put on your thinking cap. Sit on the edge of your chair. He's speaking about... <laughs> ancient hebrew etymology of language <laughs> uh, the the hem on the end is a plural suffix tacked onto the word to denote plurality so nephal being just a a a noun uh uh those who fell those who came down those who left their estate the hem uh i'm sorry uh, uh, uh to fall to come down and so on uh it's a plur- it's a singular word the hem makes it plural so boy i stumbled all across explaining what i meant that. <laughs> So Nephilim, with the im tacked on in the Hebrew, just simply denotes plurality. Those who fell, those who came down, those who left their first estate, and then some broader applications of that word. So the Nephilim are are the offspring of those who fell, those who came down, those who left one place and came to another. And so for many years, because of this word, it was thought that these beings, these sons of God who descended to earth, and impregnated human women, oh, they must be the fallen angels, because it's got the word nephal in there, uh, to fall. But remember, it's a broader application of this word. When you get into the further definitions, it can just mean leaving one's place and going to another. Um, so um, the interesting thing about the, sun, the the Nephilim is that they are parented by human women who have intermingled, interbred with The sons of God, it says in that passage. Mm -hmm. Now, in the English, they're called the sons of God. And uh, in the Hebrew, that phrase is the benecha Elohim. It's the sons of Elohim, or the bequeathed of Elohim, or those who are of Elohim. And Elohim is one of the names of God used in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, you'll find that there are many names used for God, but the one used the most is the word Elohim. And Elohim, by definition, is this. El, is the base name for the name of God. El. You find it in Elohim, El Shaddai, El Elyon, names like that. El um, is the base name for God. You find it in the archangels' names Michael, or Michael, Gabriel, uh, Raphael, Azazel. All of these different uh, archangels were of God, bequeathed of God, or created of God and so they bore the name El in their names. And uh, so El being the name of God, and Him being just like Nephilim, it's that plural suffix tacked onto a word, Elohim. And literally translated into English means God of or among many gods. It's a plurality. And I always, this was one of the first big questions I had, well actually the two first big questions I had, when I was in theology, in seminary, and in ministry, and I would ask these questions about the Nephilim, who are the Nephilim? Uh, what does that mean? And what is Elohim? Why is that defined a name for God as a plurality? And I was told, well, obviously that denotes the Trinity God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, but it doesn't say that anywhere in connection to that word anywhere in the passages where you find the word Elohim. Uh, but um, another feature is that, or factor in this, is that the, the, the Trinity didn't exist. The, the Hebrews did not believe in a Trinity. They did not have that as part of their theology. So this could not mean the Trinity. That is Christian extrapolating information back into the Old Testament, saying, because we believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, therefore Elohim means God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yet when you go to the passages where Elohim is used in the Old Testament, you will find it's nothing like that at all. Here's an interesting uh, uh, references to make on this. Elohim, as we mentioned, the sons of Elohim, the Beneha Elohim, came down and impregnated the daughters of humanity and bequeathed the Nephilim. Now, Elohim, being the name for God used in the Old Testament, it is the name used the most, almost 3,000 times in the Old Testament. Elohim is used to describe God. Now, Elohim has this plural meaning, but Elohim could also be used as a singular word. It depends on the context of the passage in which you find the verse or the word being used. In rabbinic studies, Hebrew studies, uh, Jewish studies, you will find that. They will talk about Elohim sometimes as simply meaning the plurality there means the, the, the singular God with a multitude of majestic powers. And so it would be like listening to a monarch say, uh, a king or a queen say, we have bestowed this edict upon our people. They speak in that plurality, which is supposed to be the majesty, the, the, the multiplicity of powers that they possess right? as that, that majesty um... but that's only in some cases in the old testament again context 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 you find elohim being used to also speak of the guy who set up a big tent and he's selling the elohim the false idols the, the clay idols the bronze idols the 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 wood carved idols so he had hundreds of these idols or elohim that he sells out of his tent so it's used as a as a gross uh, plurality sometimes So um, it's like our English word for deer. You can say, I see a deer, singular, in my front yard. I see, oh, a herd of deer, plural, in my backyard. That's the way Elohim gets used. And so it's used both ways. And one of the, the verses that we need to hail to to establish within Hebrew theology, who the Nephilim are, I'm sorry, who the Elohim are, is you go to Psalm 82. And in Psalm 82, it's got God speaking to a group called the Divine Council, which is also, when I grew up in uh, all of my religious studies, never learned anything about the Divine Council. Uh, and they're, they're very... Um, uh, what's the word I want to use? They're, they're, they're not found very often. Uh, and, you know, they're very obscure in the Old Testament, but they exist there. And God is speaking to the Divine Council, and He's passing judgment on this group. The Divine Council is this group that resides in Heaven some kind of ruling class in heaven, and that made me, first of all, go, wait, isn't God the only guy up there that's ruling anything? Well, the divine Council. this is what it says, and I'm going to interchange the word Elohim, the plural, the plural use of the word uh, God, where it says God in this verse in the English. It says, and Elohim stood, and that's a singular act, so singular person, Elohim stood in the midst of the Elohim. He can't stand in the midst of a singularity. That's a plural usage of the word Elohim. Elohim stood in the midst of the Elohim, and he, singular, said to them, plural, you are all Elohim, the bright shining princes of heaven. And then he goes on to cast judgment on them for something. Uh, But I could strip your immortality from you, and you will die like men. Um, He has, he's establishing his power or his uh, uh, presidency, if you will, over the rest of the Elohim. It's like Zeus being a god of a pantheon of gods, uh, Apollo, Hades, all these other Greek gods, and Zeus was the king. But remember, Zeus could also be overthrown. There were all these wars going on all the time in that pantheon of gods. I'm going to step way out on a limb here, and again, not to offend anybody's religious sensibilities, but the Bible does not teach monotheism as we thought. We were always taught that there was God. Uh, when your synagogue or your church teaches a monotheistic God, they are not teaching what is really found in the pages of Scripture. The Elohim are a caste of gods, if you will. Uh, one of them has precedence over the other, precedence over the other, or, or authority over the others. And uh, this is Elohim, the singular. The Elohim, plural, is this body, this ruling group from within heaven. Now, you could look at all of this and say, well, this is just the Hebrew religion. Yeah, exactly, you're right. This is the Hebrew religion. The reason I go into this painstakingly to establish some material and background information about the, the Nephilim and the Elohim is to show you that there is structure to these stories in the Old Testament. The origination source of the word Nephilim, uh, which has become synonymous with ancient aliens. Uh, and so I'm trying to establish that all of this exists within the Hebrew religion, but then when you take a step outside the box, you will find that the Hebrew religion is just a version of this same story that's found in almost 600 different cultures and this is where it gets crazy and a little bit weird and a little mind boggling when you realize that all these stories the story of creation the story of adam and even and the serpent in the garden the story of noah's flood and the ark the story of the nephilim and the sons of god who came down that all these stories are also stories that exist in other cultures utilizing different names of deities different names of people like noah it's a different guy and a different story a different course of events but all involving these major threads Um, some non-human entities or spirit beings that descend to the earth impregnate human women create some hybrid race that some deity or superior or higher power of some sort gets really angry about and needs to wipe them all out and very few are spared and it's all connected to a great deluge or a great flood that is used to do this and you find this in over 600 different cultures and what happens to the story in the Old Testament when you read it of Noah and the Ark when you find out that every other religion has its own version of that story and all these religions dating back to those time periods thousands of years into the into BC and you have all these stories that exist some of these stories predating the writing of the book of Genesis by 3000 years Uh, What do you do with that information? You say, wait a minute, I've stepped outside this box. All these circles that were once individual circles out there are all starting to merge at the edges. And you say, okay, what's the truth of all this? The only truth we have for certain is that religion in many different forms has been placed onto these stories. And everybody has either had their own version of these events take place, or they're all hailing back to common versions, or common events that took place. So when you boil off all the dross, what the story of the Nephilim is, is the Hebrew version of the story of race interrupted. Somebody coming here to this planet and impregnating human women, be they gods, be they angels, be they demons, be they Everything in between, or be they something completely different, something extraterrestrial, meaning not of this earth, something non human in form, impregnating humans and uh, bequeathing this race. And that's the base of this whole story. But it also goes back to the Garden of Eden story with Adam and Eve. Um, I'm going to establish how this Hebrew version of this story, uh, how you can see it all through the Old Testament, and how it piggybacks to the story of the Hebrew Messiah or the Christ, if you will. And again, don't freak out on me here. I'm not saying the Messiah doesn't (laughs) exist. I'm not saying that that is an inaccurate teaching or that Jesus Christ is not divine or the Son of God. I don't have the arrogance or the ability to declare that. But I will say this, is that the Hebrew story of the coming Messiah is piggybacked or or the story of the Nephilim, or race-interrupted, or, if you will, the divergent bloodlines that exist in humanity, starting from the very source point of humanity, is all housed in the story of the Messiah. And I can demonstrate that very easily through Scripture, and it gives you a big story that says, this is just the Hebrew version, and this is what they used to, to vehicle this story. And these events,
0: actually, in all these different cultures and everything too, they all, like you said, they all tell the same story but with different characters, but it's always basically the
2: exact same story, too, isn't it? Exactly. Uh, let's let's look at this for just a second. You go back to the Sumerian culture. Now, the study of the the Anunnaki, who were the 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 god cast, like the the Pantheon of the Olympians and the Greek religions uh the anunnaki was the pantheon of gods to the ancient sumerian culture and uh uh zechariah sitchin wrote about them and zechariah sitchin I, I take him to task on some things uh and there are some people that follow him like a religion uh he wrote about nibiru and all the the planet that they came from and all the all the things that he writes about but the interesting thing is that i for where i can take him to task on linguistics and trying to shove a square peg into a round hole, sometimes to make things fit, stretching the truth to make things fit. At the base of it all is the fact that he was onto something there, because here's what you've got with the ancient Sumerian religion, and uh, let's call it the Sumeracad. When they found, uh, uh, several decades ago, the the, the 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 cuneiform tablets of the Sumeracadians. It's Sumer and, and, and Akkad were neighboring, uh, if you would like, city-states, little countries of their own in the Mesopotamian River Valley there, between the Euphrates and the Tigris Rivers. Now, the gods, their godcast, were known as the Anunnaki. They were known as the star gods. They were the gods, gods who descended to the earth from the stars. And what did they do? They found humans, it says in these old cuneiform texts, They found humans or hominids in a state as they describe them being like the wild beasts roaming in the fields, meaning they were not civilized. And what did the Anunnaki do? They gathered them together. They bred them up. They gave them intelligence. Race interrupted, according to this version of these events. And they enslaved them, however. And they had the humans working for them, uh, mining natural resources, uh, tilling the ground and producing crops and food for them, and they were an enslaved race. Until you had, uh, uh, by the way, I didn't mention this, the the god caste. here's where it starts to get, you'll start to see some comparisons, and I'll make these comparisons. The Anunnaki's chief god was a god named Elil, E-L, the name for, that we find later in Hebrew culture being the base name for god. So Elil, E-L-I-L, was the chief god. His brother god Enki, also known as Ea in the Akkadian texts, saw the plight of the humans being enslaved, and he came down with his followers to the earth, and he freed them, and he bred them up, and he taught them forbidden knowledges of the gods. And he did this from a place known as, in the cuneiform text, as the Den of Serpents. It was the washy backwater of the Euphrates River where he had his headquarters. It was the den of serpents, also known as, with his name, Enki, also known as Ea. Uh, this place became known as, get this, Ea's den or Ea den, hmm. and this is where he taught these forbidden knowledges. And as a result, the Enki uh, or uh, Elil, the chief god, and the rest of the gods condemned Enki Ea and his followers to dwell forever in the subterranean caverns of the earth. That was their punishment for teaching forbidden knowledges. Now, the interesting similarities that you can see to Judaism or the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, what do you have? You have, first of all, the name for Elil, the chief of all the gods of the Anunnaki. Elil-E-L, 3,000 years earlier than the writing of the book of Genesis. Genesis was written in, in around 1400 B.C., while the Sumerian culture existed between 4500 and 4800 B.C., So anywhere from 3,000 to 3,300 years earlier than the book of Genesis, you have the god El-El, and the etymology or the evolution of Sumerian language as mankind spread from the fertile Crescentary in the Mesopotamian river valleys into the Canaanite region, and eventually the Hebrews picked it up, El became the, the base name for the word Elohim, or El Shaddai, the base name for the name of God. Now, very interestingly, his brother god, Enki, Ea, the freedom fighter for the humans, uh, the god, his name, as it traveled through the evolution of language and the spread of culture and religion from the Mesopotamian River Valley down to the Canaanite region, and where eventually the Hebrews picked it up, Ea became the base word for the word Yahweh, W-Y-H, Yahweh being the Hebrew version of the word Jehovah. And uh, then you see what the Anunnaki did to the humans. They enslaved them. What did they have them doing? They had them mining natural resources, tilling the ground, and uh, producing crops for them. What did you have in the book of Genesis? God creating Adam and Eve, placing them in the garden to till the ground and keep it for him. There's the similarity there. Uh, What did you have with Ea, Enki Ea, uh working from the den of serpents, teaching forbidden knowledges. You have in the Eden story in the book of Genesis, you have the serpent character who brings forbidden knowledge to Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, of course, is forbidden knowledge. They take it and the fall of man takes place. So here are the similarities in even one story written 3,000 years prior to the writing of the book of Genesis. Now, there is some talk that Moses, uh, I believe Moses, by the way, was the author of Genesis in the first five books of the Bible. I don't believe there's any reason to doubt that he was a real person, and I I actually established that in a, a whole chapter I devote to, establishing the dating of Moses and who he was, and why he would have brought to the table the things he wrote about, and what he may have copied from other cultures, and so on. But Moses being the author of Genesis is well known to to have either omitted things or copied things from other sources or one to establish himself in his rule and who he was. And I write about that in the book, and that's a completely different story. It's a rabbit trail that is used to establish certain things uh, uh, on the Nephilim, so I'll leave that one alone. For sake of this conversation, we'll get into a half-hour discussion about Moses and his dating in the 18th dynasty of Egypt. And it's a fascinating story, though, uh, which I plan to write an entire book about after I finish this next book on the reptilians. But uh, in the book of Genesis, you've got the story of the Nephilim, which I say lasts about four or five verses long, and it's a very neutral story, talking about the sons of God, daughters of men, Nephilim the offspring. Yet you go to an apocryphal book, the book of Enoch, and you will find the same characters in the same story spread into chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And Enoch being one of the apocryphal books, a book that was deemed to be non canonical or non-scriptural, and therefore booted out of the Bible under the counsels of Constantine in the 300s A.D. Now remember, Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor, Um, Who was, when you study him, was Christian in name only. He was as pagan as the rest of them. And I don't use pagan in a negative sense. In a descriptive sense, he was a pagan ruler who took on the mantle of Christianity to consolidate his empire. And he was out to establish two things, Constantine. One, that there is one religion equaling one empire, and that there was one God equaling one emperor. This is what he was out to establish. And when he convoked these councils, these church councils in the Catholic Church, it wasn't because he had a great love of Catholicism, it was that he was really pissed off at all the division in the Church, which he was using as his vehicle to establish and consolidate his empire. So he looked at all these bishops in the Catholic Church in general, and he said, you will come to unanimous agreement on all of this stuff. I do not want divisions in this Church. He set himself up as the Pope and presided over these councils for the purpose of making sure they get the job done and one of the things on the agenda was finding out which books were scripture and which were not and this is basically where the current Bible we have today comes from that compilation of 66 different books is out of hundreds of books many of which they threw out and the rules under which they operated these bishops in deciding which books belonged in the Bible was the ones we have to come to unanimous decision on, that they are Scripture, belong in the canon of Scripture. And those that we cannot come to agreement on, we have to push out of the Bible. And that's where you, all your apocryphal books come from. <clears throat> so a book like the Book of Enoch, it wasn't that they deemed it to be fantasy, it was that they couldn't come to, to unanimous terms that the Book of Enoch was scriptural, and so it got set aside into the apocryphal books. But it's in these books, that book, where Enoch spends many chapters writing about the Nephilim, writing about the Bene HaElohim, the sons of God, who he calls, and here's another pop-cultural reference you'll see now that that finds itself sourced in ancient texts. Um, He calls the sons of God, the Bene HaElohim, he calls them the watchers. And it was the watchers who came down and descended to the earth. And according to the book of Enoch, where Moses writes about it just before the flood story in the book of Genesis very briefly Enoch tells us that the Watchers the Beneha Elohim they descended to the slopes of Mount Hermon and settled there uh, they set their foot on Mount Hermon Mount Hermon being uh, a big mountain in the north of Israel and uh, it's in a highly disputed area that still exists today uh, the Golan Heights this area between Syria and Lebanon in the north of Israel is where this three-peaked mountain, uh, this widespread mountain, of Mount, uh, Mount Hermon, uh, uh, sits. And uh, it says that these 200 of these sons of God, these watchers, descended to the earth, and it was there amongst other things that they made a pact to go in amongst human women, because it says, and they found human women beautiful, and they wanted to cohabit with them. So uh, uh, there's not even a negative put on it. There, it's it's like, hey, we dig the chicks of the earth. We like human women, and they came down and they they cohabited with them. But they started at Mount Hermon and made a pact, and this pact was we're going to go in and we're going to do this. Their leader Shemyaza, said, "Don't do this. My head's going to roll because I'm your leader, and uh, I'm held responsible." And they all said basically thumb their noses at and said, hey, we're doing this, take it or leave it, join us or go. And so he joins them. And uh, it says they, they go in unto human women, they find the ones that they want to cohabit with, they marry them, they cohabit with them, they have children with them known as the Nephilim. And they also bring forbidden knowledges to the humans. These forbidden knowledges consisted of things like cosmology, herbology, uh, which is medicine, uh, the making of edged weapons, warfare, cosmetics, uh, the making of mirrors, and things like these were all the forbidden knowledges of the gods, Um, signs of the sun, moon, and stars, and things like this. And they get in big trouble for doing this from God, Elohim. Now, here's something I want you to see. When we talked about Elohim and the cast of Elohim, the divine council in heaven, these Elohim, you can relate that all the way back to the Beneha Elohim, the watchers, the sons of God who came down and impregnated human women. These were not angels. Nowhere in any of these texts do you find these beings described as angels. It's a totally different word in the Hebrew. What you have here is the Elohim being mentioned, this cast of gods, minor gods, even if you will, uh, that descend to the earth and they impregnate human women. You go back to the Garden of Eden story, and this is why this is important. What's the story in, in, garden of, in the Garden of Eden? You've got the serpent character. And let me give you, uh, Jonathan, a, a pop quiz here. Okay. <laughs> Test your biblical knowledge. Uh-oh. <clears throat> Did you go to Sunday school or not? Um, who were we always taught was the serpent in the garden?
0: Oh, that was Satan, wasn't it? That was Satan, right so, was oh. Satan oh, I passed, you scared you me passed. for a minute.
2: <laughs> you pass, Give them any gold stone um, <laughs> give me an apple an apple there you go. Give me an apple. Now what's interesting though, is that the name Satan, which is actually a title, not a name, uh that Satan, the devil and and Lucifer never appear in the Genesis passage. Those are extrapolate not extrapolated. I'm sorry at- attributed thousands of years later to that character. In the Genesis passage in the Garden of Eden story, the serpent is a character, and that's a that's an encoded uh, uh mantle put on him. It's it's a character that the, the Hebrew story calls Nakosh. Now Nakosh in the Hebrew means this means crafty magician, trickster, the bringer of knowledge and illumination, the bright shining one, and the same word for Nakosh, a variation of the word, is used to describe the brazen, shining serpent that Moses uh, makes out of bronze and raises it up on a pole in the wilderness when the children of Israel are being bitten by serpents, and all they have to do is look to this brazen serpent, this Nakosh, and uh, be healed. And it was the, the basis of the Caduceus, the, uh, uh, the medical symbol, which also had its start in Sumerian culture, the entwined serpents. So what you have in the Garden of Eden story is a character called the serpent. He's known as Nakosh. And he is the bright shining one. Go back to Psalm eighty-two. The Nakosh or the, the Elohim are known as the bright shining princes of heaven. The Elohim are the ones who descend down and impregnate human women bequeathing the Nephilim. Uh I believe that Nakosh, the serpent in the garden, is none other than one of these bright shining princes of heaven. He's the bright shining one. He is one of the Elohim. And here is what happens. The whole story in the Garden of Eden is not about eating forbidden fruit. That's an encoded message. And why it was encoded, we don't know until you start thinking more into these stories. Many of these stories were encoded. What you have here is... A sexual encounter. And the whole story of the Garden of Eden, the fall of man, is wrapped in sexuality. This is, I always wondered why um, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit and then poof, all of a sudden they're naked. (laughs) I always wonder, well, why does nakedness, what does nakedness have to do with the fall of man? Well, it was, we were taught it was an encoded way to say that they were suddenly laid bare. Everything was laid bare and they were wide open and, and, uh, uh the fall of man the, the entrance of sin into mankind it was an act of disobedience that did this well maybe so but the story is deeper than that when you start digging into this story and everything that happens and occurs right after it it establishes what this story is about it's all about sexual encounter here you have the first couple the creation couple and the first children that come along we are told are two sons, Cain and Abel. Well, they are twin sons. Doesn't say twins in the passage, but I believe they are twins for a certain reason here, and I'll tell you why. But Nakosh, the serpent character, is the one who fathered Cain, and Abel was fathered by Adam. You have twin sons fathered by separate fathers. And this is what caused the fall of man. Now, before you go, far thinking I'm kind of wacky in this. <laughs> I have twin daughters who are 20 years old and those twin daughters on the day they were born, the doctor came to me and she said, did you know that your daughter Bryn is 10 days less developed than your daughter Abby? I said, well, what the hell does that mean? She says, oh, it just me. I said, is there a deformity or something? She says, no, 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 no. She said, it just means they were conceived about 10 days apart, maybe even two weeks apart. I said are you kidding me? I didn't know that was possible. No, I didn't said, either. Yes. They're fraternal twins and they're conceived uh, almost 2 weeks apart. And so I I actually use that when I'm my daughter, you know, when she gets lippy with me, I go <laughs> I go, "Hey, you better be thankful your mother and I were sexually prolific, uh or you wouldn't even be here." Uh so well, uh, anyway, that's got to freak her out, cuz <laughs> you know, whenever your parents talk about having had sex once, your kids are like, la, 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 "I'm not listening. I'm not listening." So, uh, <clears throat> anyway, uh, um, in the Garden of Eden story, you have the fall of mankind being described as the eating of forbidden fruit, and that the serpent is actually the devil, which is never mentioned in the context there by name. He's known as Nakosh, and Nakosh, this bringer of knowledge, this illuminator, this bright, shining one. Well, the whole context of the Eden story is a sexual one in nature. Uh, if you remember, The story, it it says that uh, Eve eats of the apple, or it doesn't even say apple, of the forbidden fruit offered by the serpent uh, who tempts her. And then she gives to Adam, and then poof, they're naked. Then in the story, you have God coming down. Now, if this doesn't sound like mythology, I don't know what does. But we sometimes gloss over this stuff so easily when it comes to biblical topics and stuff of our faith. Well, God comes down to stroll through the garden in the cool of the day. Like what, he doesn't have a garden in heaven? No, he cool of day. Well, no, and I'm, not, I'm only poking fun to say that it sounds like mythology right there as one of the great mythologies of human religion. And so God comes down, strolls through the garden, and he calls out for Adam, Adam! And then there's, no, there's no answer. Adam! He calls again. Adam calls out, I'm hiding! And God says, well, why are you hiding? And he says, we were naked! And God says... Who told you you were naked? And Adam, right away, the blame game. So, oh, the woman, she, she gave me this thing, this fruit, and the woman's like, and not the serpent, he gave me this thing. And, and uh, so God comes out and he curses everybody. And this is where it establishes uh, a little bit about what's going on here. First thing I, I want you to note, I had mentioned that Eve bore twin sons. Now, the word twins is never mentioned in the Scripture, but she bore two sons, Cain and Abel. And I contend that one is the son of Nakosh, the serpent character in the garden, and one is the son of Adam. Cain being the son of Nakosh, Abel being the son of Adam. Now, here's where I start to establish that. First of all, in most ancient cultures, when you start going outside the Hebrew religion and look to other cultures, many, many, many myriads of cultures have creation first families. And in these creation first families that go by different names than Adam and Eve, um, you have these characters that uh, either have children, multiple births, or in most of these stories, there is a trickster character that comes into play who either impregnates the wife of the first couple or the daughter of the first couple. And they always bear multiples, twins, triplets, quadruplets, something like that. And this is one of the gods, this trickster character. I, I quote in my book, The uh, Lakota uh, uh, Mythology of, and I can't pronounce the names off the top of my head. They're the, the something, something, tonka, ta tonka, you know, the man <laughs> and the woman in Lakota. And uh, the serpent character is named Iktopi. And he comes in and impregnates the daughter, falls in love with or desires the daughter of the first couple and impregnates her. She has triplets. Same thing is happening when you compare the Hebrew version. Eve has sons. They are twin sons. She has been impregnated by the trickster character, the crafty magician, the bringer of knowledge, the illuminator, the bright shining one, Nakosh. And here is how it bears out. When God comes down and he starts cursing everybody, there's two things that happen. There is a messianic prophecy that is given, the first of messianic prophecies. You talk to any rabbinic scholar, any Christian scholar, they will tell you The first prophecy of a coming Messiah takes place right there in the Garden of Eden when God is cursing the serpent. Across the board, there are very few that dispute this within theological circles. And God says to the serpent, he says, And there will be a day when you will bruise his heel, but he will return and crush your head. And that's all he says. It's a, a precursor, a prophecy of the coming Messiah who would be the kinsman redeemer by the jewish sensibility that would come and bear the atonement be the atonement and bear the sins of the people and uh he would be bruised there's the psalm that says he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities uh and this is a reference to the genesis uh garden of eden prophecy of the messiah uh he will bruise his heel he says to the serpent but he will he will crush your head meaning he will have ultimate victory over you. Now the interesting thing in all of this is the Hebrew sensible sensibility of the word messiah it meant savior it meant redeemer but it also in the Hebrew sense it meant kinsman redeemer and this is all through the old testament you will find the kinsman redeemer if you get into christianity the coming of the messiah the christ you go to church on a on a christmas and people will talk about They'll talk about, and Jesus was one of us. And on rare occasions, they'll refer to the kinsman-redeemer, the one of us. It's that watered-down version of of the kinsman-redeemer. In the Hebrew sense, the Messiah was known as the kinsman-redeemer, and there's a reason for this. Uh, They were establishing that the redeemer, the Messiah, had to be raised out of the pure-blooded line of humans. He had to be kinsman with us. He had to be one of us, which begs the question, if, we, if they worked so hard to establish that the Messiah was one of us, he was a kinsman, why were they doing that? It would, it would almost force the question, then, then there must be someone who could not be one of us. There is that bloodline that he could be raised of that would not be one of ours. He had to become, become of pure human blood. Now keep that in the, in the hopper for a second. The next thing that happens in this Garden of Eden story is God says this. He looks at them all, the serpent character, Nakosh, Adam and Eve, and he says, And there will be constant enmity or conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, or the seed of humankind. And he's established right there that there is a dual bloodline, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the human. Hmm and then depart yourself for a minute from the Garden of Eden story. Sometimes understanding this stuff is from jumping all around in the Scripture and, and discovering things. Have you, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you will come across patch, passages that speak of, uh, the, or that give the genealogies. It's a genealogical record from Adam and up, and you know, and Adam begot Seth and Seth begat so and so, and so and so begot Lamech, and Lamech had seven sons who lay with three harlots, and right. <laughs> his son so on. You know, and, and you have this genealogical record. In the Jewish tradition, they always carried it through the firstborn son, this genealogical record. Now, these genealogies are there. We always wondered why are these boring genealogies put in the Old Testament? Why do these exist here? Well, it's for no other reason than to establish the line of the Messiah. What is the line of the the, the Messiah? The line of the Messiah is showing that there would be a coming Redeemer who is a kinsman Redeemer, and the line of the Messiah was establishing the pure human bloodline. And if you are establishing a pure human bloodline that predicates, or or, uh, not predicates is not the word, that, that requires the opposite. It's like saying, I I have turned on the light to eschew the darkness. Uh, If you have the line of the Messiah that is of the pure human bloodline that keeps getting established over and over again, the kinsman redeemer, the bloodline, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, it's establishing that there is also a non-human bloodline, or a bloodline that is the opposite of that.
0: I never thought of that before, but as you're saying that, that makes absolutely perfect sense. Why would they have to do that other than the... Sure, it does, yeah,
2: and and when you get all the way up to thousands of years later, King David of Israel, they they trace his genealogy all the way back to Adam, um, and then when they get to Mary, the mother of Jesus, the her her followers establish that she is of the royal house of David, and they trace her because that became after the time of David, the messianic prophecies altered a bit, and now the Messiah had to come from the royal house of David, and so that was tacked onto the the, the message of the kinsman-redeemer. Now the kinsman-redeemer is coming of the royal house of David, so he had a claim to the royal throne of Israel. So they established Mary is of the house of David, trace her back to David, then again trace David back to Adam. But what's interesting is they don't follow Hebrew tradition. They do not trace her, her this line back to Adam through the firstborn son, Cain. And it says Cain had a son. Who do they trace it through? They trace it through the thirdborn son, Seth. Why do they do this? Well, that's interesting. Because Cain murders his brother Abel, apparently before Abel had sons, because he's not listed in the, the genealogy as having sons. Seth is the third-born of Adam and Eve, and by the way, it's kind of bittersweet-sounding. There's a sadness to this, but it also establishes something. When she bears Seth, she says, "'God has given me a man-child to replace my lost son, Abel.'" Now, if they had more children than Cain and Abel before Seth, they're not mentioned. And when it mentions the birth of Seth, "'God has given me a new child to replace my lost son's Abel.'" So they trace through Seth. Why? because Seth is of the pure human bloodline Adam and Eve Cain is not of the pure human bloodline he is the son of Nakosh and Eve and the Kenites is who he fathers and it's interesting when you look again some of these these minor comparisons but you look back at the story of the uh, out of the, the the book of Enoch and it talks about the watchers who came down and bequeathed forbidden knowledges, one of these forbidden knowledges was the making of edged weapons and uh, um, metallurgy, things like that. What did Cain become and his followers, the Kenites? They were metallurgists they were they they introduced uh, weapons to mankind, and this is what they were known for. Uh, the connection there is is very interesting. but why do all the genealogies trace through the firstborn? Yet the genealogy of the Messiah, establishing the pure bloodline, not traced through, through the firstborn. Because the firstborn was not of pure human blood, and therefore could not produce the line of the kinsman-redeemer. Now when you get to, let's go right back where we started the beginning here. The sons of God came down, intermingled with the daughters of men, and had children, the Nephilim. And this is the preamble to the Noah and the ark story. Right. Uh, Noah was chosen because it says he was, he was the only righteous man left, and that he and his family, and that he was pure in all his generation. And this is why God chose him. And he was a man that was righteous and followed God and was upstanding and blah, blah, blah. Now, what's very interesting about this is that's the English interpretation of Hebrew language. This is what you find in the English Bible. Now, it doesn't call him a righteous man in the original uh, when I say original, I mean the Hebrew text in which it is written. It calls him a pure-blooded man, pure in all his generations, back to Adam, through the third-born, Seth. So when God chose Noah, he is not saying because you're righteous and upstanding. He's saying because you and your family are one of the only pure-blooded human families left, going all the way back to Adam, through oh, ex- Seth. Exactly. You are not of the line of Cain. And uh, this is why he was chosen to carry on the bloodline of the kinsman-redeemer. Now, when you look at all of this stuff, step back from it for a minute. And as we, we referenced in an earlier part of this interview, um, you will see that the Hebrew story becomes the Hebrew version of these events. It's the Hebrew version of race interrupted. The Hebrew version uh, and vehicles within the story that carry on and prove that there was a at least to the Hebrew uh, uh, Hebrew sensibilities that there was a pure human bloodline versus an impure human bloodline or a tainted or a mixed human bloodline and this is the Nephilim. And the Nephilim Cain in the Garden of Eden story it, Cain is the first of the Nephilim. He was fathered by one of the same characters that makes up the the Ha-Elohim, this cast of Elohim, the Divine Council, the Bright Shining Ones of Heaven. This is Nakosh, the Bright Shining One bequeaths or father's Cain. Uh, uh, Eve, I'm sorry, uh, um, the Beneha elohim the Sons of Elohim, the Bright Shining Ones, intermingle with women and bequeath the race of the Nephilim. Uh, that are to be wiped out in the flood the whole story of the flood of Noah is not a story of wiping out mankind for their wickedness it is the wiping out of the wickedness brought to mankind the corruption of the bloodline the wickedness or corruption or tainting of the human bloodline
0: so it's just to purify everything isn't it get it back to the original bloodline
2: exactly and that's the encoded message behind all of this and when you start looking at the Hebrew accounts as being versions, you step out of that box and you look at all the other cultures who have these these different versions of this. I already mentioned the Sumerian culture where from the den of serpents uh, or Ia's den, uh, Enki Ia teaches forbidden knowledges to the humans and he's condemned, he and his followers, to the subterranean caverns of the earth for it. You have look at Krishna in the Hindu religion Krishna what did he do he sat in a beautiful garden beneath the banyan tree on top of a coiled serpent and disseminated the forbidden knowledges of the gods to humans and what happened the gods put him to death for it in Quasdkotl of the Mayan culture the winged feathered serpent God of the Mayans who took on the form of a human he brought the forbidden knowledges of the gods to humanity, and the rest of the gods condemned him for it, and put him to death. You've got this story repeating over and over and over again, in in every different culture. The pervasive presence of the serpent character is always there. The serpentine influence. When you look at the Anunnaki, the earliest version of this story, the Sumerian story, three thousand years before Genesis it is said that the Anunnaki were a reptilian-type people.
0: That's, and, I was just going to say, is there a correlation to the reptilians? I know that's your second book, and that or yes. it continues with this one left off.
2: Yes, uh, The Secret History of the Reptilians. And uh, uh, it is said that the Anunnaki were reptilian in nature. And the reptilians, here's what I'm finding. I, I don't know everything there is to know about this, obviously. But one of the basic things I'm finding is it seems that when you talk about alien greys and abductions and things like that, the little gray characters, mm-hmm. the the reptilians seem to be a different race. These seem to be two different races exactly. that are warring against each other in mankind. And where this all sounds like science fiction fantasy, tell me everything else we've talked about doesn't.
0: Well, actually, our, our guest last week, I was talking to you off air, Joe Montello, he talks about that in the different races, and it's exactly right. There's multiple races.
2: There are. And where you have the greys being your extraterrestrial race, you have your reptilians being this, if you will, intra-terrestrial race. They are from the subterranean caverns of the earth. They come from within the earth is one of the going theories about them. And uh, the interesting thing about this is that they all... Uh, I, I want to give you... Uh, before I state that, I want to give you another... This popped into my mind and I got to give this to you right now. One of the best... Um extra cultures and that's a bad way to say that one of the other cultures it speaks of these types of beings um this whole nephilim story and all of this and forbidden knowledge and subterranean caverns of the earth and all of that is the the celtic version of the story the ancient celts the irish mm-hmm. they had a a mythology of the tuatha de danann and the tuatha de danann known as the tuatha or the Tua. uh these are Characters who uh, were known as the children of the goddess Danu, and they were the bright. Get this: they were the bright, shining kings who descended from the heavens and came down to earth and taught the forbidden knowledges of the gods and impregnated with humans. And they eventually there were wars with them, and they receded in importance and receded to the uh, the, the the very Celtic uh, label uh, on this: the, the hollow hills uh... the subterranean caverns of the earth and they became known as the Elven folk. And uh, you look at uh, the writings of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, fiction, yes, but here's a man who had his finger on the pulse of all these old mythologies. The Elven folk, again bearing the name of el, E-L uh L for uh, uh for Elil, L el for El Shaddai, L Elohim. Uh this L name for God, the Elven folk is what they became known as. So you look at one of these legends and you start seeing all these things repeated again and uh in these stories and so uh uh the reptilian characters are related to the uh, or at least correlating to the subterranean dwellers those that had that were condemned to dwell within the earth according to roman catholic theology there were neutral beings in the wars in heaven there you had satan or lucifer and his hordes that followed him who became the, the the devil and his fallen angels and the wars in heaven. But you have all those that were neutral beings that were the ones that were wouldn't take a side. They were like, hey, we're staying out of this between God, <laughs> between you and Lucifer. Uh you know, I could just see that and and be a little tongue in cheek about it, but because uh they were neutral, they were cast down to the earth. They were considered to be too good for hell, too bad for heaven. So they were cast down to the earth and they were the the el the the entities like the tuatha de Danan or or the elven folk they were they were the fairy folk. they were the elementals that we find in paranormal investigation a lot. and these were supposed to be the beings that have to do these spirit beings, these earth beings, these earthbound spirits that have to do with uh, this neutral cast that was uh, cast down to heaven from heaven to the earth. so all of these things exist in uh, in in all of our fairy tales in all of our our mythologies yet uh... they are things that uh... have their firm roots in all these old mythologies and stories about these beings from heaven so um, uh... heaven if you will the heavens if you will Right. so uh... uh these reptilian characters um, i'm still in the midst of completing this book for new page books uh... which is due out february of twenty thirteen and so i have to have this book done in the next couple of months but uh, uh, I'm still studying this and researching it out, and I want to try to draw some loose conclusions, but there's never any firm conclusions because we just don't know.
0: i right. have say so you're still studying that, too. Like we were talking off air when I first heard of the reptilians. I thought that was just crazy talk, but I've heard yeah. from more people throughout the years where I'm, I'm starting to completely reconsider that. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. And uh, so this stuff is... Uh, What you've got with the story of the Nephilim is not a singular mythology that's like one of those, oh, cool, weird stories, science fiction, fantasy. What you've got with the story of the Nephilim is a story that crosses every culture in one form or another of of ancient times. And uh, where you cannot apply the scientific methodology, if you will, to all of this, you can't call a... uh, uh, an Elohim into the lab with a human woman is okay. Start procreating now, please. So we can record this. That's
0: the aliens uh, jobs. That's what they do. That's <laughs> the aliens'
2: jobs. Um, what you can do is say there, there is a multiplicity of cultures that teach the same thing at the base core of the, all these stories. And what does that tell you by itself? It tells you that there is a common thread that is common to all cultures. And therefore it is a story that exists beneath all the mythologies. And so if that story exists, you can't prove it, but there is a certain scientific methodology in saying it existed in every culture, and therefore there is something to this. Well,
0: that alone, the correlation between all cultures having stories that are almost the same, that there tells you something, because that you know what are the odds of them all making up stories that are exactly the same?
2: Exactly. Uh, that's exactly it. So uh, um, when you start studying the Nephilim, what I've written about in my book is a story that is bigger than the source point, the the Hebrew Old Testament. It's a huge story encompassing all of mankind that has to do with race interrupted, and according to even the Genesis account, it is race interrupted from the get-go. Whether you believe the story of Adam and Eve is fact, word for word, because this is what you believe by faith, Mm -hmm. or whether you believe it's an allegorical tale, even within your faith, or it's a mythological tale, or it's an encoded tale uh, that may involve real people, but an encoded message. Uh, No matter what you believe about that, it is a story that establishes that humankind was interrupted from the very beginning. That's absolutely fascinating. Do you want to
0: give, you? I was going to say, do you want to give the information on your book, too, where they can buy this book and the name absolutely. of it again?
2: Absolutely. Well, as my publisher, New Page Books, would say, uh, it's available everywhere books are sold. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I find it all the time in Barnes & Noble. You know, when you're an author, you go into Barnes & Noble to buy something, you go, I got to go look and see if my book's back there. And uh, sure enough, there was, I, I took a picture once and put it on my Facebook a couple, about a month ago. Uh, where I was in the Mall of America, which is up here in Minneapolis, and, mm-hmm. and I went to the big Barnes and Noble store there, and walked back to the their New Age section, spirituality, occult. You know, which I don't see this as occult cult or New Age. I see it as uh, not even really spirituality, even though, though it involves all those things, I it's hard. It it's hard to find categories for those actually. I, that's why it gets plugged in there. It's I see it as anthropological, archaeological, historical with all these other elements tying in. But I walked back to the bookshelf, and there it is, sitting right next to Eric Von Daniken's book, Face Out. Oh, there you
0: go. Now there's a compliment, huh?
2: Big compliment. So I took a picture and had to post it on my Facebook. And uh, I said, hey, look, there it's in the stores. But it's available everywhere books are sold. Uh, You can get it the easiest if you do any online shopping. You can obviously go to barnesandnoble.com, or bn.com, I think is what it is. And you can go to Amazon.com and find this book. And uh, so it's everywhere. It sounds like an
0: amazing book. I actually just listened to you say all that. that's brought a lot of questions up into my mind. And uh, your research, you know, it's obvious. What you, when, when I hear people like you talk, you know, my gosh, it, it's, it's crystal clear what's going on. It just opens your eyes up.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And And, and it does that for me. It still does that for me. And I will tell you, the, big, the biggest thing for me, if you haven't gleaned this already, uh, one of the big things that I still struggle with with this, and I mention this uh, on occasion when I get a chance to talk about this part of it, is the spiritual aspect of it, or the faith aspect of it. Um, I, my faith has changed dramatically since the writing of this book, since the research of this book. And it wasn't just the singular act of saying, oh, there, period, last sentence finished in the book, Oh, I think this has really changed me. It's the it's the, the path that has brought me there. It's the, the research, it's the years of thinking through these things, contemplating, and then finally studying them out. And I gotta tell you, it has affected my faith because I I have found that the God I was taught is not the same God that exists in these stories. Uh, the God I was taught in theology, systematic theology, seems to be different. Um and all these other cultures are they all wrong uh, and i liken it to my faith is is kind of taken this turn I, I i think of the old big uh, think of the old theaters the old uh, stage theaters which have turned into movie houses over the years and theaters um from the turn of the last century the big victorian and edwardian era uh, theaters with all the gilded uh, uh paneling on the walls and the Mm -hmm. chandeliers and the the red velvet seats and all that looking at the big gilded uh, golden uh, proscenium arch and velvet curtains and think of the theater like that when you walk in there and think of it this way every one of those seats represents a faith or a spirituality or a point of view Mm -hmm. and but there's only one true one there's only one true seat in that theater And your job is to find it because it looks like everyone else, like every other seat in the house. And you can go sit down. The interesting thing, though, is no matter what seat you sit in, whether your view is orchestra pit or back of the main floor or balcony and nosebleed or partially obstructed by a pillar, (laughs) no matter where you sit in that theater, you're watching the same show up on stage. The show doesn't change based on where you sit. Mm-hmm. And so there is a story that's taking place that doesn't change just because I put my faith on it. Just because the dogma of my systematic theology within my denomination says everybody else is wrong and we are right doesn't make that so. It doesn't change the story for somebody who doesn't believe that. Okay. It's the vantage point they're seeing it from.
0: I say, how's the the feedback from your book? Because when something like this is, you know, a bit on the touchy side, I mean, I understand 100% what you mean, but you're going to get feedback sometimes that's probably negative because you're not following the, how would you put it, you know, common beliefs, you're
2: altering things. Well, I said to my publisher the day I turned this book in, I said, you know, Michael, I said, I am going to um, get equal criticism from Christians, Jews, skeptics scientists and ancient alienists alike i said because somebody's gonna be pissed off that i didn't say this or that i said that or that why did you include this story but not that story why didn't you even mention the x y or z um, and that's exactly what's happened um, most people will read the book and have, have been very positive about it makes me think um, but i'll i'll put it this way there there are two uh... If you go to Barnes and Noble or you go to Amazon, you'll see all these uh critiques that people can write about your book reviews. Mm-hmm. And uh over on Amazon.com I saw two reviews, one right after the other. One of them said, I hated this book because all he did was talk about aliens. Uh he obviously didn't do his research because he uh uh he pushes down scripture and he slams scripture and he slams jesus i can see him sitting amongst his friends preaching the efficacy of of uh aliens and how they will save your soul at dinner parties and stuff like this <laughs> and he uh, so i give it you know one star for research and uh then the next review said i have never been so fooled by a book's cover uh, I got into the book and found out all he's doing is promoting God and Christianity in the Bible, and it uh, doesn't even talk about aliens. I give him one star for research. And I said, "No, wait a minute, which one was it? These two were diametric, uh, 180 degrees opposed in their critique of the book. Does that mean they didn't read the book, or does that mean that they just gleaned what they wanted to out of the book?
0: Well, that's like anything. Uh, two people can read something, ten people can read the same thing, and ten people get completely different meanings.
2: Exactly. But I'll tell you this. um, For one person to say I'm only preaching aliens and the other person to say I'm only preaching God, I'm doing neither in the book. And I'm doing both. Um, Well, you're just presenting
0: facts, basically. I'm presenting
2: facts. I'm presenting uh, sometimes not even fact. I'm presenting mindsets.
0: mm
2: -hmm. And I take Christianity to task. At times I take established uh, views of ancient aliens to task in this book. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, ranting in this book about certain things, and I don't want to say it's mindless gibberish when I say that. I'll yeah, rant that, about. That's certain very
0: things. bad for an author to
2: say that, by the way. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> buy my book; it's full of mindless <laughs> gibberish. Yeah. Um, okay. But there, there's a point where I take evangelical Christianity to task, and I go off on it a little bit, saying it's it's interesting how I can talk to people I know in evangelical Christianity, and they'll they'll be very interested by these topics but we'll fall short of saying I can give it any credence. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I can't believe that there are aliens because that undoes God for me. Well, I don't don't find them them mutually uh, uh, disrespectful or or in in adversity to each other. When I hear
0: things like this, like you and other guests like this, I listen to what you say, I listen to your facts and how you come up with your conclusions, and that's how I base it. And when something like yours, again, what you're saying makes sense. I mean, that's the way I look at things like this. I don't it doesn't matter about my theory or my thoughts. It's I'm taking into consideration all your research and what you came up
2: with. Well, thank you. And I, uh, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to present something that makes sense. And uh, where it doesn't make sense, say this doesn't make sense, and we got to research this more. And I will tell you this: all I look to my book as being is um, it's another apple on the cart. Um. And somebody else out there, maybe even your listening audience, has the, the next apple to put on the cart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, we're, we're building knowledge, and, uh, oh, and, and uh, knowledge, it just sparked something in my head that I did not mention, I want to bring this up. There is something that made me ask some big questions in this book. When you go to the Garden of Eden story again, now I don't know if you ever knew that this passage was there, but if you go to Genesis 3... And read the account of the fall of mankind, serpent, Adam and Eve, all of that. There is a little passage tucked in the middle there, and it's right there in the Bible. Just read it, go look it up. It's where God says this, it's God speaking. And to whom is he speaking is the big question, until you find all this other stuff. God says this, and this is maybe a good way to wrap up this whole story. God says, it says, and Elohim said, the humans have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let us plural now prevent them, the humans, from also eating of the tree of life, lest they become like us, like the Elohim. And I always wondered about that verse. And of course, the first questions we had were, Well, who are the plural? He's talking, it was us, and uh, uh we always got, it's the Trinity. you know. They're speaking in the Trinity. And then, and then of course, the argument was, well, then, remember, the Jews didn't have a Trinity. Who's talking? To whom? Well, it's the multiplicity of the powers of God. Well, why is God worried about people becoming like him? Isn't he the supreme God that created everything? Exactly. How, uh, how, the, so two big questions were raised for me out of this. What did God have against humans having knowledge? Because it seems to be the sin of the garden of eden was gaining knowledge the knowledge of good and evil the tree of the knowledge of good and evil what was it in all these other cultural stories it was the dispensing of the knowledge of the gods the forbidden knowledge of the gods to humans that created a catastrophe that created the condemnation of the the god or the person who did that so my first big question is When God says, the humans have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let us also prevent them from eating of the other other tree. What did God have against knowledge? And secondly, if there was something humans could do to become exactly like Elohim, or the Elohim, what does that say about God? If ancient man could do something to become just like him. That's interesting. Uh, So uh, those are the questions, the unanswered questions, that are raised by this for me is why does God not want us to have knowledge, and what does he have against us becoming like him? Is this a deity, or is this an entity? Is this an extraterrestrial, if you will? Somebody from somewhere else who bred up humans to be their slaves and do not want those slaves to be like them? Uh, Or is this something completely different?
0: That's a question you're not going to be able to answer.
2: Yeah, there's no way to prove any of it, so we're left speculating.
0: Hmm, Well... That's, that's actually been amazing, Scotty. I mean, uh, that's completely eye-opening, too. I love interviews like this when I come away with uh, something new that I've learned. Those are always my favorite type. Do you have uh, anything else you want to plug, websites, anything whatsoever here as we're uh, well, wrapping it up?
2: I would just say uh, uh, if you want to uh, go take a look at our magazine website, go to intrepidmag.com. You can download the first uh, issue that we put out. It's uh, the one with Chip Coffee's face on it. And You can see what we're all about. Subscribe if you like it. Uh, also, uh, click on that Paradigm Symposium link. If this is the kind of stuff you enjoy listening to, enjoy learning about, this whole conference is going to be based around this kind of thing, stuff that I don't even talk about, I don't know nothing about. Uh, uh, and there are going to be all these fabulous speakers there. So if it's something that interests you, come on over and get your ticket and get your hotel room before they're all gone.
0: Yeah, that event, I can't stress it enough. This event sounds absolutely amazing, too. So for your listeners who are thinking about it, do it quick, because i got a hunch it's going to sell out. It's going to. Okay, well, it's been a great time talking to you, Scotty, and uh, you're welcome to come back anytime you want, uh, especially when your new book comes out, or if there's any new uh, news about your event coming up, too, if you want to discuss it on the air.
2: Fantastic. I appreciate that. I'll do it.
0: Okay, have a great night.
2: And you, too. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, we'll be right back. You're listening to Thresholds Radio.
3: TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out ufo-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com.
0: With us now is my good friend, Jeff Mudgett. He's got some new information and a promotion for us. How you doing today, Jeff?
4: Hey, John, good to hear from you and uh, thanks for this opportunity.
0: Oh, no problem, what, what you got going on?
4: You know, we've started t- to see some movement in the entertainment industry about my story and my book, Bloodstains. I'm, uh, in two weeks, I'm in Chicago. Uh, filming with Pilgrim Studios, the History Channel. We're going back down into the basement, something I promised I was never going to do again, the murder castle. Uh, The post office is allowing us to do it. They're going to film for a full hour show on perhaps the most, uh, well, the place Harper's Magazine said God allowed evil to run amok. Um, I'm uh, half excited, half scared, to tell you the truth. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead with it and uh, see what we come up with with a professional film crew uh, following along behind us. So I'm I'm juiced about that. Then PBS has asked me to host their uh, Halloween special fundraiser uh, with John Borowski, the uh, director of the great documentary about H.H. H. Holmes. Uh, we're going to put a show on together and uh, see if we can't uh, drum up some funds for PBS. I'm excited about that. Oh, that's cool. And, yeah. Then uh, we've uh, been following along with Warner Brothers and uh, their uh, development of the, uh, the Devil in the White City, the movie of H.H. H. Holmes starring Leonardo DiCaprio. So uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on about this story. It's about time for 100 years. No one knew much about H.H. H. Holmes, perhaps the most evil man who ever lived. And uh, I'm glad that the story being told and we're getting we're, get, we're finally getting the truth out, John.
0: That's true. Actually, I'm from the Chicago area, born and raised out here until recently. I think I told you off air before, Till a couple years ago, I never even heard of H.H. H. Holmes before. And I'm from this area.
4: You know, and it's amazing. Uh, I know Chicago has the reputation for a sweeping horror stories under the rug, and and they certainly did uh, Holmes and the Murder Castle.
0: Yeah, they must have, but the people that do know about it know a lot about it. There seems to be a lot of people obsessed with it when I discuss it, or even when I tell people I'm going to be talking to you, their ears always perk up.
4: Yeah, and I wanted to also explain a little promotion we've got going, John. I want people to understand the story before these TV and movie shows start coming out, As you know, we sell on Amazon the ebook version of Bloodstains for $2.99, and I'm trying to get some movement on that. And um, we're going to offer two free signed copies a week now to the best review on Amazon we get that week. And by best, I mean sincere. It doesn't have to be good, uh, good and bad, but sincere uh, with a little effort put into it. We're going to send out two free signed copies of my print version of Bloodstains. Oh, that's
0: a cool deal. And you want people just to be completely honest, not just trying to butter you up, just the total truth on how they feel about the book.
4: You know, I have never appreciated how the literary world has treated reviews and how they've pretty much all been bought for authors by their public, by their publicist. And uh, I don't, I don't want that. I'd rather have someone tell me something they disagree with. Um, I don't want name calling, that kind of thing, John, but uh, let's, let's, let's discuss history and see if we can work together. To continue uh, coming up with uh, with the facts of the story. That's
0: great. And where, where did you say people go to write the reviews? Then?
4: Well, go to Amazon uh, and buy it for, from Kindle. It's uh, two dollars and ninety nine cents. Just plug in bloodstains, one word. It's easy to do. Um, then uh, after you've finished, uh, that gives you the right to put a review on Amazon on my page. Uh, go ahead and do it. And we, uh, Kelly and I, my uh, my manager, we uh, we review. Um, all the reviews every week. Hmm,
0: that's cool. Like I said, we were saying that before. You're an interactive uh, author here. Like a lot of people don't, you actually pay attention to what people say and respond to comments.
4: I And I can't understand why any author would do that. I learn something new about Holmes, about Chicago, about uh, the paranormal, about forensic science every week from, uh, well, you just meet – a lot of incredible people when you uh, stay interactive, John. You yeah, know, I've
0: seen some of those things on Facebook before where people will write something and say that their great grandfather or their aunt or their mother actually had a run-in with H.H. Holmes. And those kind of things are fascinating because they're firsthand accounts.
4: Exactly. And plus, I'm meeting new friends every week, uh, staying interactive. And uh, I, it's almost worth the effort writing the book, just the people you meet. There
0: you go. So you got anything else for us, Jeff? I know you were in a hurry today. You just wanted to share this information. Anything else you want to say?
4: No, I tell you what, the, uh, I'm just excited as heck that the entertainment industry is taking notice of the story and they're finding it potentially uh, advantageous for them to consider uh, making a movie or a, a miniseries out of, uh, out of Blood Saints.
0: I agree. It's 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 going to happen. It's it's moving along pretty quick. Not quick enough for you, I know, but it's moving along quick. It's going to catch on because the, the subject is fascinating. I,
4: I don't I, I, I agree, and and um, I just want your listeners to jump in, uh, grab that. It's an excellent deal. Two dollars and ninety nine cents is not even the price of a coffee at Starbucks anymore. Pull it, pull it out, and if and if they don't have a Kindle or a, or a machine that uh, runs the ebooks uh, as you know, we run the program that uh, Amazon offers to allow you to run the book right on your laptop for free.
0: Yeah, and you can do that from uh, Amazon too. I know you can actually just, they got that free version you can get right on their site.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's no more excuses. You don't have to have a Kindle or an, iP- or an iPad to uh, read uh, the great selection that Amazon offers and the uh, instantaneous way you can have uh, some great books in your home today. Okay.
0: That sounds great, Jeff. Uh, Thanks for checking in with us, and we'll talk to you again next time.
4: Thank you, John.
3: TheEdgeOnAir.com wants to invite you to be abducted. Tune in Friday night starting at 10 p.m. for Thresholds Radio. Host John Stevenson is your guide through the realm of the paranormal with an hour-long radio show sure to give you the heebie-jeebies. Check out UFO-info.com to learn more. It's Thresholds Radio every Friday night at 10 p.m. on TheEdgeOnAir.com.
0: Welcome back. With us right now is our very own Mike Clean with a new segment we're going to be starting about news of the strange and unusual, the kind of news you generally aren't going to hear on your mainstream uh, TV or newspaper. This is the strange news brought to us by <laughs> the strange Mike. How's that for an intro, Mike?
1: Well, thanks a lot, John. <laughs> That's always great to hear, uh, but it couldn't be further from the truth.
0: See? I speak the truth.
1: And some of these articles that we're going to be looking at today are news stories. Some uh-huh. of these news stories that we're going to be talking about today are really strange and unusual. But that's what kind of makes our lives interesting, doesn't it? Exactly. So, first up, we've all heard of this Mayan prophecy, right? They say that the, the Mayan calendar ends in 2012... And that means that the world is ending in 2012. So yeah, we're, we're all we're toast
0: in like six months or something, right? Don't, don't yeah, ruin
1: it. I mean, I got plans for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's supposed to be right December based on these ancient calculations. Well, National Geographic funded an expedition to kind of dig through the area down there. And they discovered a mural in Guatemala that was uh, devoted to this, this king from that era but it also had a calendar in this mural that extended uh, their timeline by thousands of years.
0: I actually saw that too.
1: So they really, you know, were were masters of of time and they they kind of like Doctor re- Who. <laughs> well, <laughs> not like that, well, but he was a time they lord, were, right? They, they were very good <laughs> at studying all the cycles of the sun and the moon, and they could try to figure out these sort of grand time scales. So in the article it says that uh, in a striking find, archaeologists in Guatemala reported the discovery of a small building whose walls display not only a stunningly preserved mural of a brightly adorned Mayan king, but also calendars that destroy any notion that the Mayans predicted the end of the world in 2012. So these calendars can be used to count thousands of years into the past and future. So they really were very good at that, that kind of thing back then, much more than we are today, yeah. even though we have a lot of uh, scientific implements and things like that. My own personal theory is that back then, because there were there were no electric lights or anything, stars were very vivid, and they didn't have a whole lot to do, so they would sit there and study <laughs> the stars all day.
0: <laughs> they didn't have internet back then, did they?
1: <laughs> yeah, there weren't a whole lot of things to be distracted by. I mean, unless you were running from a Jaguar or something. <laughs> yes,
0: that's true. Yeah, I, actually, their, their calendars and all their calculations were, uh, we can't, we're not as accurate as they are today with computer technology. Everything we have, we cannot duplicate what they had back then.
1: Well, they actually had brain surgery too. Not a lot of people know that. And if a patient was killed during surgery or died, uh, rather they weren't charged. The doctor is doctor put to death.
0: Whoa! See, they should do that nowadays. That would that would cut down on that malpractice stuff.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, but then who would want to be a doctor at that point?
0: <laughs> well, only the best.
1: Yeah, I would say so, but <laughs> it's uh, you know, it's interesting and I always thought that whole story was kind of hype and I'm glad that they discovered this. Although Well, that
0: means we have Christmas this year then because initially we were all toast on the 21st.
1: Well, it is interesting if you're a conspiracy theorist. That this is suddenly coming out now,
0: exactly they- I told you I told you that off air too. I'm like, huh the the timing, how do we know it's not a plant cover story?
1: <laughs> yeah, that is fascinating suddenly they found this out of all the years that we've been doing excavations uh-huh
0: it's like, oh uh, oh, never mind, <laughs> yeah, that actually, to be honest, that's the first thing that came to mind when I heard this. I don't know if it's because I've been doing this too long or what, but honestly, the first thing that came to mind when I read that article was, yeah, sure, it's a plant. It's a cover story. (laughs) That's scary, but I'm being totally honest. That was the first thing I thought of when I read that.
1: So there was this old Mayan city, Zultan, Zultan, (laughs) I think is how you pronounce it. I'm not Uh, up uh, on uh my Mayan (laughs) pronunciations.
0: That's okay because there's no Mayans around to correct you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's definitely not Zardaz. But this uh, this city was discovered apparently in 1915, but it has never been professionally excavated until now. And there's been a lot of looters that have dug through the area trying to find artifacts and things like that. So this is something that has just been found because it's a place that's only just been excavated in the past couple of years.
0: Hmm. You know, a lot of people regardless aren't going to believe this because, I mean, there's cults that... Or getting ready for the end in 2012. So many people believe in it. They're not going to believe this no matter what.
1: Yeah, and there's there's so much of this that's open to interpretation. <clears throat> you know, I'm always interested in when scientists or archaeologists they come across a mural on a, a cave painting, let's say, and there are strike marks on the mural, and they say, "Oh, this this must have been some kind of." religious ritual, they would throw spears at the mural to get ready for the hunt. <laughs> How the I mean, heck do they know that? <laughs> yeah, there's no way to know. I mean, they could have been using it for target practice, or maybe someone just got bored one day and started throwing rocks at the thing. Maybe I mean, it was
0: uh, like the, the husband's favorite painting and he came home late or something. The wife was mad and scribbled it off with her spear.
1: <laughs> yeah. The point is, I mean, these things are up for interpretation. Exactly. Uh, so who knows, really?
0: What else you got well, for us? That was actually, that was a pretty interesting one.
1: Yeah. Well, this next one is is kind of fascinating to me personally. I'm not a twin, but I have been interested. <laughs> Thank God in my, for little miracles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't need another Michael Caine <laughs> running around. But I'm fascinated by this psychic connection that twins seem to have. For each other. Oh,
0: it's amazing. Actually, Russell Targ, we had him on a while ago, he was talking about that. It's a scientific fact, too. It's not just a theory. It's been proven in laboratories.
1: Well, in this instance, in this story, it's been shown to actually have saved someone's life. There are these two men in Australia, Craig and Brenton Gurney. They're both 38. Well, so. well duh, I'll think about that. <laughs> They're, well, it's, They're twins. <laughs> one's
0: 35 well, and one's 42.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, just for added information. Know, I'm and apparently sorry. <laughs> they, they also married women named Nicole. So <laughs> they do a lot together. They said they're really, really close, but we don't need to know about any of that. <laughs> okay. So the interesting thing about this is that one of them started having headaches and he went and got his brain checked out and it turned out to be fine so then his brother went and and had his brain scanned and they discovered that he had a a tumor in the back of his brain Wow! and so this physical manifestation of pain uh in one of the brothers led to saving the other brother's life
0: that's cool and that really does happen Like i say we've, we've had people on here discussing that it's a it's a known scientific fact
1: Oh yeah. Well also I've heard about twins who even though they're living, let's say, hours apart from each other, when one dies, the other one will also die, like either at the same time or short you know, well, shortly. Oh, couples will do
0: that too. You always hear stories about people that have been married, you know, seventy, eighty years, you know, the long, long term ones, and a wife will die and the husband dies within minutes. It's just yeah. because they got that connection from all those years.
1: So Here's what this guy from the Brain Dynamics Center at the University of Sydney said. He said that uh, Do it in an Australian w- accent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to accept that. That's not—
0: <laughs> Okay, go ahead.
1: <laughs> the audience would tune out. He says it's not something that happens often. And as for the telepathic connection between uh, twins, he says there's so much that we don't know. But I think it's pretty well established that there's this, this kind of a connection.
0: Well, actually, when, like I said, when we had Russell Targon, one of the uh, experiments he's talking about is they would take a twin and have them in separate rooms, and they would shine a light in one twin's eye, and they had brain scans hooked up to each one, and the twin that was in the other room that couldn't see it, on the scan, they would see their brain reacting to the light. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you dispute that? That's You know, that's scientific evidence
1: well, that's that's interesting, and it i I think that that proves the existence of some kind of non-physical connection between people because it it seems like I mean, there, there couldn't really be any other explanation for that, right? Unless there's some sort of energy that we don't know about. yeah, well, these are that laboratory can, conditions pressure.
0: too. So when they do that, you know everything that can possibly interfere with that is out. I mean, it's—and there was more of them, but this is just the one I recall. But, I mean, it's an extensive research on twins.
1: Well, it it could be that the twins' brains are so in sync with each other that when one uh, is stimulated in a certain way, the other one picks up on that, kind of like— two television sets that are set to the same frequency, right, and they both pick up the same exactly. uh, data. Well, you know
0: what else actually Russell had said is uh, two good, good friends. You know, if you know, you got one of those buddies you've known forever, that kind of thing. He found that they could do that with good friends, and a lot of times the friends would have the same reaction as the twins.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that if you study any kind of team, or military unit or, you know, a group of people who have been together for a very long time, I think that they develop these forms of nonverbal communication and they can almost, it's almost like they're reading each other's minds. Exactly. So I know that you're interested in these these unusual noises that have been heard around the world.
0: Yeah, you're going to tell me they, they're not really being heard, right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no. Well... That's my own personal. We're going to have
0: Linda Moulton-Hall on in uh, I think mid-June, and she's going to have she has a whole report about those stories. So don't ruin it.
1: Well, this one is one for you because this is an unexplained sonic boom noise. So this is a story coming from Scotland, and there's a sonic boom that's been blamed for tremors that were felt by residents across the north of Scotland, and this is coming from some news source (laughs) that's unidentified
0: (laughs) a scottish news source
1: yeah this is coming from a scottish news source it says the strange vibrations were phoned into police late on tuesday night this is this past tuesday by people in cults (laughs) inverbervy aberdeen stonehaven cove and air it sounds like
0: it's hard to say the names out that way actually
1: yeah, it sounds like they're living in Middle Earth or something. <laughs> there you go. So a spokesman for the Grampian police confirmed the reports and said that the Can force received— Can you do this received... one with an accent? <laughs> no, there's no, no accents.
0: Oh, come on. I'm trying Please. to add a little bit of pizzazz to the section here.
1: I don't think we need to lose any listeners.
0: <laughs> okay, go ahead.
1: <laughs> they received about a dozen calls between 9.45 p.m. and 11.15 p.m. He said that uh, Grampian Police can confirm the following: uh, that following numerous reports from members of the public who felt tremors during this evening, the British Geological Survey has reported no significant seismic activity, and there's been no reports of injuries. So this is kind of interesting. So people have felt these sonic booms and tremors, but the tremors weren't registered by the uh, Geological Survey. Okay. So. We're not sure exactly how that could have happened but there is a supersonic flight over the area. So they say that um that aircraft could be mistaken, you know, for an explosion or tremor when they go faster than the speed of sound.
0: I don't know, that's didn't that just happen out here somewhere too? Do you recall that
1: story? Was it in California? They just had that, wasn't it? There are there are a lot of stories lately about strange sonic booms or tremors. You know, I think in Canada, there's been some kind of noise.
0: Yeah, I heard about that. Or, they're they're saying it's coming from the American side. They're blaming us.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just this mysterious background noise. And it, it kind of reminds me of an old story that one of my friends uh, grew up in the Peru-LaSalle area of Illinois. She said that uh, one summer, her and her friends were kind of walking around, and they heard this calliope music. You know, that you would hear at a carnival. Mm-hmm. And they tried to find the source of this music, and they were walking all over the town, and it didn't seem to be coming from any one place. You know, when they'd be on one side of town, it seemed to be coming from the other. And it just, it kind of lasted all afternoon.
0: Did they check the sewers to see if there is perhaps any clowns in there?
1: <laughs> clowns in the, oh God. <laughs> that, is, that is a frightening thought. <laughs> what was that movie?
0: Uh, was that a Stephen King movie, wasn't it? It? It, yeah, that was the one. That was a creepy clown.
1: <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about uh, killer clowns from outer space.
0: Oh, no, that, that would be when we talk about our, uh, our MUFON stuff.
1: <laughs> or the insane clown posse that invades <laughs> southern Illinois every year. Uh,
0: yeah, that's completely different. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, here's the big story of the week.
0: Okay, I don't have a drum machine here, so you have to use your imagination.
1: Okay, so scientists are turning to genetics to see if they can prove the existence of Bigfoot and Yeti and Sasquatch. So they've been collecting all these various samples that people have picked up over the years. Yeah, I've heard
0: about that too.
1: Yeah, just like uh, Bigfoot hair or, you know, I, I guess, I mean, hair is probably the, the main thing. I'm not sure what else they would have found.
0: Well, they get, uh, they well, they call it scat. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. that's actually the term for it. <laughs> Right. But I guess they found that before, too. But I actually heard that, too, that some of it is actually being analyzed right now, and the results are due out shortly.
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, I've heard that there have been uh, some results that show that uh, it's from an unknown species. Some of the hair that's been collected is is not a known DNA profile.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I I think it's due out pretty soon, too, because... uh, uh, somebody I know that is into that field was talking to me about it. They're actually, they're going to come on the show possibly next week to discuss this too.
1: Well, I I listen to Michael Medved a lot on the radio. He is a radio host and a film critic, and despite his, he's very skeptical about all this stuff and conspiracy theories and things like that. But he lives out in the northwest, I believe, around Seattle, and he is a Bigfoot believer. He thinks that there is a, a an ape out there, and he's always saying, you know, that North America is the only continent that doesn't have a great ape, and he, you know, thinks that's very strange. So maybe there is one out there.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of think there is too. They'll, they'll find it one day. It's obviously it's extremely intelligent because it's never been found.
1: Well, either that, or it, it just lives in areas that that uh, have not been explored.
0: Well, there's interaction with them in areas. I mean, they, you've heard the stories where they, they throw pebbles at you and stuff, and they're extremely accurate. They can throw them from quite a range and actually just hit the edge of your glasses to get your attention and stuff. There's numerous stories like that.
1: Well, according to some people, there has been a lot of interaction. I, I remember going to a MUFON meeting where a woman passed around a cast of a Bigfoot, and she claimed that there are these uh, big, big feet, or Bigfoots. I'm not sure what the plural of that is.
0: Bigfoots. Big
1: <laughs> yeah, that they were living around her house, and she claims that she has contact with them all the time. Now, it, I'm very skeptical of that. So am I. But a lot of people have seen strange creatures like that in Illinois.
0: Yeah, numerous, uh, numerous sightings. Actually, I know a few people that are into this, and uh, they there's a, what it is. there's a lot of woods in Illinois. For people that don't live out here, they just think of Chicago, but. We have some uh, huge coverage of woods out here, too.
1: Yeah, down in southern Illinois, there's the Shawnee National Forest, and that covers miles and miles of territory. I mean, there are places in there that people don't go very often.
0: Well, there's right out here, I mean, uh, outside the suburbs of Chicago. I mean, the Bachelors Grove Cemetery and all those areas. Those are miles and miles and miles of interconnected woods through there.
1: Mm -hmm. And so one of the... Kind of most interesting things about this article is they, they try to tie it in with Neanderthals. They think that perhaps that these Yeti are surviving Neanderthals that somehow wandered off.
0: Wow, never heard that before. I suppose that is a possibility. I've never heard that though.
1: Yeah, because it, they say that uh, that Neanderthals died out when they were they kind of interbred with Homo sapiens because they found they've done these genetic testing. And about two to four percent of the DNA of Europeans is Neanderthal, <laughs> uh, which would probably explain why we're so hairy. <laughs> at, least, at least me, anyway. Okay,
0: a little too much information there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Man, I I had a friend you could make a rug out of his back. I mean, like, it was bad.
0: Like cousin It from the Addams Family. <laughs> Do you remember <laughs> yeah. that? So okay, you're, you're be, getting off topic here now, Mike.
1: Yeah, we we don't need to to hear about that. So. <laughs> no. That's your weekly roundup of kind of strange news, and I know that you, John, have news of your own. If you can talk about it, if you can share with us about your recent expedition with the Ghost Adventures crew.
0: Yeah, actually, it's safe to talk about it now. I've known about it for a while, but I haven't been able to say a word. I filmed uh, Monday and Tuesday at Bachelor's Grove Cemetery with the Ghost Adventures. Actually, it was pretty cool. the uh, there was a complete lockdown. There was police everywhere. The whole force reserve was closed. And uh, we had you, the police. You
1: had a special police escort? Oh,
0: yeah. We had all kinds of cops. We got to park. If you're familiar with Bachelor's Grove, you had to park in the parking lot across the street. We got to park in the grass right outside the entrance. And uh, we had police escorts. Uh, it was actually pretty cool.
1: So, w- what's the episode of the show going to be like? Is it all going to be about Bachelor's Grove, or are they going to other places? In it, it's Chicago? Bachelor's
0: Grove, uh, the Excalibur. And I believe he said something about uh, Zach's high school or something. I guess he went to high school somewhere out here, and he visited his high school for a little bit, so I'm not sure. Hmm. But they they talked to me for almost two hours, and then then there was reenactments. Actually, the second day, I actually got to be an actor on the show and do reenactments, so I had a pretty good time.
1: So is the segment going to be all uh informational with reenactments or did they do an investigation
0: they stayed uh they stayed at night too and they did an investigation so i'm sure they
1: did they have any leg tingling
0: well actually uh nobody knows not even the uh, the producer i guess zach doesn't share any information with anybody so he doesn't even know what happened but through the mm-hmm. grapevine i did hear they said they did get something but i i have no idea you know, that could be a paranormal mouse for all we know. I have no idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, what was what was the thing that happened to you that you reenacted that, with the uh, old lady? Well, the
0: personal one was that I was standing outside the graveyard. This is just a couple of years ago. I used to go there in the morning when nobody was around, you know, so no one would bother you. I was standing outside there and uh, crystal clear, I heard an older woman's voice go, John. And it didn't scare me because I thought somebody was there. And I just turned around. I'm like, yeah. And I turn around and there's no one there. And I looked and looked, and no one was there. It didn't scare me. It wasn't a threatening voice. It was It was kind of like your grandmother calling you. Hmm. And I had told them that, and I actually don't watch the show, but I guess they do reenactments. So I actually had to, I got to be my own actor. I had. I got to do that. It was actually pretty cool. I'd never done anything like that before.
1: And they had someone play the old lady?
0: Yeah, and actually, you know, when she was behind me and she said that, it gave me chills because it actually sounded so much like what I remember. It kind of freaked me out, except she was actually there. Except I got yelled at for looking at her by the director. <laughs> I, I, I what was it, his mother or
1: something? <laughs> well, no,
0: that was an actual actor. <laughs> oh. They had called me and they go, uh, can you find us an old lady? I'm like, What? They're like, well we, we didn't know about your story. We have to do the reenactment, so we need an older lady. I go, "Well, I can look around for you, but it's not as if I, you know, I know exactly where I'm going to find one." Yeah. But but they had found one themselves.
1: But
2: uh, we, it
0: was
1: I, I was going to say they could have just gone into the local diners and pulled someone out of there.
0: Yeah. It was it was pretty cool. I had a really good time. The actually the second day. The first day was just with the the guys themselves and then the second day was you know, with the production crew and doing all that stuff. And I, th- I think the second day was actually more fun because it was more interactive.
1: Well, what's the timeline? When is it going to air?
0: Uh, tentatively, they said a couple months. I mean, there, there's no date set yet. They said they'd let me know. So it's going to be at least two months away.
1: Well, from what I remember, last year when I, I was on the uh, the premiere on, for Ashmore State's, that came out in September, it was on the air. So this probably will be September, too.
0: I'm kind of excited to see it. It's interesting. It's also, it's the first time ever that a film crew has been allowed in Bachelors Grove Cemetery. So it's it's like a first.
1: At night, right? I mean, Well, in period. Well, no,
0: there's never been a, a film crew, I mean a big place, you know, like all the ghost shows. No uh-huh. one's ever been allowed in there to this point. They've always been turned down. And this is the first one that they let in. Actually, and they're starting a whole new thing there, to where they're going to start being a little bit more friendly towards stuff like this. I have direct numbers to contact people if people want to film in there now. So, the, yeah. The, well,
1: now they now they know they can make a lot of money from it.
0: Well, actually. That's what I thought too. But it's not. They just want to make some money. They don't want to make a lot of money because they don't want the public to think that they're taking advantage of a situation with Bachelors Grove. They want enough huh. to cover the police because police have to be on duty and make a little bit of money. But they actually, they're just trying to please the public. You know, there's a whole, a whole new turnaround there. It's, it's, it's really a really cool idea, actually. We discussed it uh, in length. Uh, with the man that's in charge of that. Not the board, not nothing. The man that actually makes the physical deci- decisions. We discussed this, and uh, this is in the near future. They're going to start having uh, trips into Bachelors Grove, and you're going to actually be able to go in there at night and pay.
1: Well, that would be a good idea so that they could actually raise money to uh, to fix up the place.
0: Exactly. It's a really cool idea. They're like people go in there all the time and they vandalize. He goes, this way, it's under control. We have officers there and we make a little bit of money. You know, it's a win-win. I think it's an amazing idea.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's great. So this this is going to be a great show. I can't wait to see it.
0: Yeah, either can I. So you got anything else for us, Mike?
1: That's about it for this week. But next week, uh, stay tuned for more exciting news stories yeah. into the strange and unusual.
0: And this is going to be a weekly thing. So every week... Mike is going to come here with his strange Mike-like stories for us. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. yep. and, it, and if you want to know about more strange and unusual stories in the great state of Illinois, of course, stop by TrueIllinoisHaunts.com. That's my personal website.
0: Or you can talk to Mike on Facebook, too. Mike's always on Facebook.
1: Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll talk
0: to you next week, Mike. All right. Good talking with you. Okay, bye. All right, we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll
3: be
4: back next week. You can check out info on the show at ufo-info.com. See you next week.